0: Before we get started, I'd like to make a request to my audience. If you happen to be listening to this on uh, Apple or Spotify, or any app that allows it, please take a moment to rate the podcast and also to write a review if you care to. This helps others to find the podcast, and it's also enjoyable for me to read your feedback. Now let's get going. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Jackson. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the first Manassas uh, battle, Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard had received most of the credit for the victory. However, by late July 1861, the newspapers were picking up on what most of the soldiers in the Confederate Army, were already saying about Jackson and his brigade. Mary Chestnut wrote of the, quote, Stonewall, unquote, in her diary on July 24th, and on July 25th, the Charleston Mercury ran the story with the encounter between Bernard B. and Jackson at Henry Hill. It was a dramatic embellishment that was changing slightly, as you might expect, in a game of telephone. On July 29th, the Richmond Gazette published the story of Jackson's dramatic stand on Henry Hill, and then his legend grew like wildfire. Soon enough, Thomas J. Jackson would be Stonewall to everyone in the South and eventually the North as well, and his five Virginia regiments would forever be called the Stonewall Brigade, the most famous fighting unit in the Confederacy. Now, meanwhile, in the autumn of 1861, the South was still basking in the glory of their victory at Manassas. They firmly believed the war would be over soon once the European powers recognized the new country and intervened as they had in the Revolutionary War. No further attacks had come from the Union armies in the East, and the Confederate army was in no big hurry to exploit their recent victories. Jackson did not agree with this approach, though, and was actually mortified by the South's lack of urgency. In October, Jackson confided in his immediate superior officer, General G.W. Smith, that he believed the Union would eventually have a great advantage over the South once, the tr- once they truly organized their army. The only solution for this was, he believed, to attack the North immediately. He advocated for attacks on Philadelphia, Baltimore, and the Great Lakes area between Pittsburgh and Lake Erie, and, quote, subsist mainly on the country we traverse, and making unrelenting war amidst their home, force the people of the North to understand what it will cost them to hold the South in the Union at the bayonet's point, unquote. Of course, this was an idea that was well ahead of its time. Eventually, William T. Sherman would employ this tactic in Georgia and South Carolina three years later, as would Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley. Jackson asked Smith to use his influence to promote his idea in Richmond, but Smith demurred. Then on October the 7th, Jackson was promoted to Major General and was now in uh, division commander in Joseph E. Johnston's army. In late October, Jackson was given command of what was to be called the Valley District and on November 4th, he arrived in Winchester, Virginia, to take command of his district. Winchester, Virginia, which is at the northern end of the Shenandoah Valley, would change hands during the war many times. It was probably the most contested ground of the entire Civil War due to its location in the Shenandoah Valley. Now we're going to spend some time in the valley uh, over the next few episodes, so we should take a moment to describe it. The valley is the area in between the Allegheny Mountains and the Blue Ridge Mountains. It runs from southwest to northeast, starting at Stanton, Virginia, in the south, and ending in Harper's Ferry, now West Virginia, in the north. The Shenandoah River runs through it in two forks, the North Fork and the South Fork, which both drain into the Potomac River to the north at Harper's Ferry. To the Confederates, the valley was a crucial source of grain and food for the population and the army. Also, for the Confederates, the valley served as an invasion route to the north. The Confederacy would always be able to threaten Washington and other major northern cities using the mountains surrounding the valley to screen their movements. Robert E. Lee would eventually invade the north twice using this valley as a causeway. This potential threat to Washington would make Jackson's army extremely valuable during the Valley Campaign. And after the campaign, Jackson's uh, legendary status was solidified for all history. Okay, Union General George B. McClellan had finally gotten his giant army of the Potomac moving on what we now call the Peninsula Campaign. His plan was to move his army up the peninsula between the James and York Rivers in Virginia from the Atlantic coast up to Richmond. While he was doing this, General Irwin McDowell would bring a force down to the south from Washington and together they would catch Joseph E. Johnston's Confederate army in a pincer. The result would be the destruction of Johnston's army and or the capture of the Confederate capital in Richmond. Either result result was hoped would bring a swift end to the war, which was now about a year old. Also, for background, United States President Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Stanton were worried about McClellan's peninsula campaign. They were worried that he was concentrating too many Union forces in the Richmond area and that might leave Washington vulnerable to attack from a Confederate force that would come up through the Shenandoah Valley. Joseph E. Johnston knew this and wanted Stonewall Jackson to exploit this fear. Johnston's plan for Jackson was to tie down as many Union forces as possible in the Valley by strong demonstrations and skirmishes. Johnston didn't want Jackson to take any unnecessary risks, but he also wanted him to hold as many Union forces as possible in the area so that he could isolate and focus his attention on McClellan's force coming up the peninsula. Now, we will find out that Jackson did his job in spades. To put some context on uh, the battles in the valley, the sum total of all of these battles and skirmishes probably wouldn't compare in scope and carnage to other large-scale campaigns of the war. However, the impact would be to blow up the plans and careers of many Union generals and would make Jackson a legend. Jackson would push his men to superhuman endurance, covering as much as 30 miles per day, after which they would fight a battle and often win that battle. For most of the battles in the campaign, he would use stealth, deception, and speed to isolate and outnumber the federal units and defeat them in in battle after battle. He had at his disposal in the area of the valley about 17,000 Confederate troops, and he used them to tie down as many as 50,000 federal troops who otherwise would have participated on the attack on Richmond. We will begin our discussion of the valley campaign starting in December of 1861. Jackson had a meager force of about 5,000 troops in Winchester. This included 2,000 from his original Stonewall Brigade, which had just joined him in Winchester, and 2,500 local militia and about 500 cavalry under the brilliant but erratic Turner Ashby. Against him were about 7,000 Union troops in Romney, Virginia, which was or is 50 miles west of Winchester. 16,000 troops under General Nathaniel Banks, north of Winchester, around the Potomac area, and about 22,000 troops under William S. Rosecrans, or Old Rosie, who were west of him in the mountains of what is now West Virginia. Now in camp, Jackson was the strictest of disciplinarians, and he knew how to break down his men. This was done by drilling five times per day until the drills became a permanent part of each man's muscle memory. Also, Jackson would summarily eliminate militia rankings and make every officer earn their new army rank. He was much harder on his men than than he had ever been before, but he was never angry or emotional. He was ruthless with arrests, with officers or with men and the guardhouse awaited anyone who shirked or did not immediately follow orders. He forbade anyone from entering the town of Winchester, and all had the strictest orders to stay in their camps. As a result, the officers of one of the brigades sent him a joint letter asserting that this was, quote, an unwarranted assumption of authority, unquote. He wrote them back a letter stating they were in violation of army regulations and guilty of neglect of duty. Remember, duty was everything to Jackson, and this carried the threat of court martial. Now, Two weeks later, a popular soldier named James A. Miller got drunk and shot and wounded his captain. An army court martial found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Now, it was common for an army commander to commute such a sentence, and this was, this was a, a rather popular uh, young man who had been sentenced to death. In fact, Jefferson Davis actually did commute his sentence from Richmond because he was sympathetic to this popular young man. However, before the commutation from Davis had arrived at camp, Jackson had the sentence carried out, and the young man was shot to death. Rules were rules and duty was duty to Jackson. Now, what uh, Jackson really wanted to do was to attack the enemy, and he got his chance when his proposal for a winter campaign was approved by Richmond. He would advance on Romney, Virginia, about 50 miles west of Winchester, and capture the federal force there, and then advance into the mountains of western Virginia to win back the territory for the Confederacy. Remember, this was uh, really his home territory. This would be a tall order because winter in the Alleghenies is particularly harsh. There are steep, formidable mountains, often covered with snow, and it's subject to bitter cold and ice storms. Jackson's proposal noted, quote, an arduous undertaking that would involve the sacrifice of much comfort, unquote. This was probably the understatement of the entire year. Now, to do this, he requested the forces under General uh, William Loring in southwest Virginia to be brought up under his command. This would give him about 10,000 troops with which to carry out this arduous mission. General Loring's troops took much longer than expected to arrive, and neither he nor his men had any idea of the difficulties they were getting themselves into by joining Jackson's Valley Army. More on this later. Finally, on New Year's Day of 1862, the Romney Expedition, as it would be known to history, began. Jackson could have moved his 10,000-man force directly to Romney to the west and attacked it, But frontal direct assaults uh, were never Jackson's preferred approach. Instead, his plan was to move north and seize the small town of Bath first to cover his flank and rear. Then he would swing west and, and south to attack Romney. Now, when they left Winchester, the weather was unseasonably warm. But the temperatures dropped almost immediately into the low 20s once they got moving. This was a problem since every man had left his overcoat, blankets, tents, and food behind in the supply wagons, which never made it to camp. In these conditions, General Loring ordered his brigade to bivouac short of their destination on the first day to feed and clothe his men. This was an absolute no-no to Jackson, and he became furious. He ordered them to pack up and move forward without dinner in the freezing darkness. This began Lorraine's bitter complaints about Jackson that would eventually come to a head later. Meanwhile, conditions got worse as the temperature continued to drop, and Jackson pushed his men on. The next day, conditions got even worse, and the commander of Jackson's old Stonewall Brigade, Richard B. Garnett, stopped and allowed his men to cook rations and eat. They had not eaten in more than 30 hours. This was was a mistake on Garnett's part. Jackson never liked Garnett, for reasons not known to history, and this was the start of some really bad relations between these two. For now, though, he was commander of the Stonewall Brigade, and he was not in good standing with Jackson. The truth is that Jackson was unhappy with nearly all of his subordinates, and things really flared up in the Romney expedition. His old business partner and former boss at VMI, William Gillum, committed the unpardonable sin. They were approaching the town of Bath at sunset, and Gillum had his men bivouac for the night instead of attacking immediately as Jackson had ordered. For this, Jackson brought charges against Gillum and sent him back to VMI, out of the Confederate Army altogether. Orders were orders and duty was duty. Then on January 7th, the misery got worse. Man and animals were literally freezing to death, trying to march on solid ice roads, and many of the men had no shoes. Most of the men on this expedition said it was the worst non-combat experience of the war. But Jackson showed no sympathy for the troops' suffering. Actually, he was sharing in their misery, often walking beside them and dismounting to put his shoulder to the wheel of a wagon to keep it from sliding back on the ice. Sam Watkins had this to say about the Romney expedition in his memoir. Hundreds of poor wretches were frostbitten, many died on the road, and many lost arms and legs. The soldiers in the whole army got rebellious, almost mutinous, and would curse and abuse Stonewall Jackson. In fact, they called him Fool Tom Jackson. They blamed him for the cold weather, they blamed him for everything and when he would ride by a regiment, they would take occasion to abuse him and call him Fool Tom Jackson, and loud enough for him to hear it. Soldiers from all commands would fall out of ranks and stop by the side and swear that they would not follow such a leader any longer. Well, Meanwhile, Jackson was becoming increasingly frustrated with his officers for their seeming inability to get the men moving faster. In fact, he would write a letter to Richmond demanding that General Garnett be relieved of command for this reason. Now, Garnett was an experienced soldier and a Virginia aristocrat with deep political connections, so he wasn't going anywhere. You might know Garnett's name from Gettysburg. In about a year and a half from this time, he would lead the vanguard of Pickett's Charge at Cemetery Hill in Vicksburg. Excuse me, Gettysburg. He would die on the Gettysburg battlefield, and will have outlived his nemesis, Stonewall Jackson, by just about two months. But for now, Garnett was Jackson's second-in-command on this expedition, and neither man was happy with the other. Jackson could have helped his cause with his men and officers if he had given them even the most rudimentary idea of what they were doing or where they were going he told no one of his plans, not even his second-in-command. This helped ensure secrecy from the prying ears of enemy spies, but invariably kept his officers in the dark and confused. Nevertheless, Jackson expected obedience, whether you knew and understood his strategy or not, and this never sat well with his subordinates. On January 14th, after a harrowing two-week journey, Jackson's force finally approached Romney, but upon arriving, they discovered that the Union force of about 7,000 who had occupied the town had already left. They were gone, and what from what they uh, found when they got there, it wasn't really a surprise, but more on that in a moment. Now, Jackson's plan was to continue on his expedition to capture the Union supply de- depot at Cumberland and destroy the railroad bridges west of Romney. But at this point, this was a simple impossibility. The morale and strength of his army was depleted and shattered. Straggling and desertions were rampant. The men were exhausted from constant marching in ice and snow with little food and with little sleep. There was nothing for Jackson to do at this point, except to put his army in the winter quarters." In doing so, though, he ordered Loring and his brigades to remain in Romney while he returned to Winchester with the Stonewall Brigade. This was a very unpopular decision with General Loring and his men because Romney was almost in, in, uninhabitable. Romney had become a mud-bound hogpen with raw sewage in the streets and a courthouse full of rotting meat that the Federals had left behind. <laughs> While Jackson was back in Winchester in comfortable environs with the company of his wife, Loring and his men were back in Romney, fuming with anger over their plight in this godforsaken town. They appealed to Jackson for relief, but he wasn't having it. So Loring and his officers began to wage war against Jackson by writing letters to their political friends back in Richmond. Indeed, Lauren's men were getting sick by the hundreds due to the terrible conditions in Romney, and so powerful men in Richmond had become sympathetic to their plight. The result was a letter from the Confederate Secretary of War, Judah P. Benjamin, ordering Jackson to relocate Lawrence's men back to Winchester. Jackson was astonished. The Secretary had bypassed the chain of command, including Jackson's superior, Joseph E. Johnston, by issuing the order. For someone so focused on rules and duty, this was an outrage. Jackson's response was to resign from the Confederate Army with immediate effect in a letter to Joseph E. Johnston with copies sent to the War Department in Richmond. This, as you can imagine, was a lightning bolt uh, that shocked the establishment, including Jefferson Davis himself, and then they went into action. They immediately sent uh, Congressman and Jackson friend, Alexander Butler, to Winchester to beg Jackson to stay. After much pleading from Butler, as well as coaxing from Joseph E. Johnston, Jackson did decide to remain in the Army. Jackson and Johnston wanted to court-martial Loring for his actions, but instead he was banished to Southeast Virginia and was actually promoted and his uh, command was dispersed to other units. This event was a turning point in the war and in Jackson's life. According to author S.C. Gwynn, the Romney expedition witnessed the emergence of an extreme style of leadership that posed for the first time a question central to the outcome of the war. Just how far could you push both officers and common soldiers in pursuit of military goals? What the Confederates had done was no ordinary march. Jackson had forced his men to walk more than a hundred miles through a succession of brutal winter storms, high winds, ice, mud, and temperatures that stayed well below freezing. In spite of repeated protests from his officers, conditions that worsened as they marched, the troops with frozen, bleeding bare, uh, bare feet, he held fast to his objective. Jackson was, in fact, slightly just ahead of the soldiers' and the nation's perception of what this pitiless war was was all about, and just exactly how much raw suffering and death lay in the path of victory. Jackson was emboldened by his victory on the Romney expedition and over Richmond, To illustrate this, he issued the following orders to one of his colonels who complained it was impossible to get men to execute an order. If your cavalry will not obey your orders, you must make them do it, and if necessary, go out and do it yourself. Arrest any man who leaves his post and prefer charges against him, that he may be court-martialed. It will not do to say that your men cannot be induced to perform their duty, They must be made to do it. Jackson had also demonstrated that pure gall and audacity counted for something. George McClellan was now afraid of Jackson, who was an unpredictable wild card in the valley to him. Union generals Banks and Lander wanted to move against him, but McClellan wouldn't have it. Meanwhile, Jackson's army was in a dangerous position. On paper, he had about 10,000 men available, but uh, the ranks had been depleted by sickness and desertions. Around him were three Union forces now, all under the command of General Banks, totaling about 30,000 men. Two of these three forces had crossed the Potomac River and were moving into positions that would allow them to envelop Jackson's army. Another danger was that the men of the Valley Army, who actually had weapons, were poorly armed with outdated smoothbore muskets that were only effective up to 100 yards. The Federals were all fully armed with rifled muskets with an effective range of three times that. Jackson had actually asked the Confederate government for pikes so that his men would actually have something to fight with when the battle came. His request was granted, but the pikes never arrived. Now, Union General Nathaniel Banks was a charismatic and po- uh, popular political general and governor of Massachusetts. He had fantastic connections, was a potent political force in the North, and Lincoln owed him many political debts. So although he had no military experience of any kind, Banks was made the fourth-ranking general in the Union Army. He now had responsibility for dealing with Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley and he was confident in success. Banks had great intel, which told him he had a crushing advantage over Jackson in terms of men, material, and weapons. However, even though he had no military experience, he chose to disregard the advice of the many West Point-trained generals and officers in his army. Banks now moved his army slowly toward Jackson's force at Winchester, on March 7th, his advance units had a, scar- a sharp skirmish with Jackson's cavalry commander, Turner Ashby, and easily brushed Ashby's force aside. By March 10th, Banks was beginning to surround Winchester, and on March 11th, Jackson decided he had to evacuate the town. The residents of the town felt abandoned, and they pleaded with Jackson to stay, but he had, really had no intentions of abandoning the town, and he would be back. That night, he convened a council of war with his top officers, in which he proposed a daring night attack on the federal position north of Winchester. This was an audacious plan to uh, to turn his army around, which was now four miles south of the town, and attack a much larger Union force. But he had no illusions. His plan was to try and make the Federals believe he was stronger than he was, at least to cover his retreat better. However, his officers unanimously rejected this proposal. The army was much too strung out, and his supply wagons were too far away to be of use. Jackson tried again putting the matter to a vote, but again they rejected his plan. He then accepted defeat and made plans to continue the retreat, but he was white hot with anger. His f- uh, friend and medical officer McGuire quoted Jackson as saying, quote, this is the last council of war I will ever hold. Unquote. And it was his first and his last. Interestingly, during this time of hardship and difficulty, Jackson's health had actually become excellent. Since June of 1861, two months into the war, all of his old ailments the uveitis, the stomach troubles, the nagging sinus infections, The aches and various organ complaints had mysteriously vanished. Counterintuitively, Jackson's health seems to have thrived under the privations and difficulties of campaigning. Meanwhile, things were happening in Washington, D.C. that would affect Jackson. Frustrated with McClellan's delays in attacking Johnston in the East, he was relieved of overall command of Union forces. This meant Nathaniel Banks would now report directly to Secretary of War Stanton and President Lincoln. Banks was confident he would easily swat away Jackson and his little slapdash army in the valley and get back east to where the real action was happening. Events would soon change his perspective. On March 21st of 1862, Jackson's cavalry commander, Turner Ashby, came into some intel that Union forces were beginning to move east. Now, this was Jackson's worst nightmare, because he had been placed in the valley and in this command for the specific purpose of keeping Banks' army occupied and away from Johnston's army in the east. In fact, Banks had decided Jackson was no longer a threat in the valley and was making plans to move his army east to take part in the coming attack on Richmond, During preparations, Banks sent one of his divisions under General James Shield to chase Jackson south from Winchester and destroy him if possible. Now, Shields was an Irish-born immigrant who came to New York when he was 16. Then he moved to Illinois and became a self-taught lawyer just like Abe Lincoln and his fellow Irishman Patrick Claiborne. However, Shields was no fighter like Claiborne. And in fact, he was just another political general to whom Lincoln owed favors. Now, Shields pursued Jackson well south with uh, Turner Ashby's cavalry providing rear guard cover. Two days earlier, Joe Johnston had written Jackson telling him, it is important to keep that army in the valley and that it should not reinforce McClellan. Do try to prevent it from getting and keeping uh, by getting and keeping as near as prudence will permit. Now, Jackson's definition of prudence was different than the rest of the world's definition. Indeed, he would keep Banks' army in the valley and, in doing so, set new standards for audacity. Union General Shields, thinking he had chased Jackson out of the valley to the south, broke off pursuit and headed back north to Winchester. However, Jackson had not been chased out, but instead would now become the aggressor. On March 22nd, he would conduct the first of many forced marches, this one of 30 miles through mud and rain. The pace caused scores of men to drop from exhaustion, and supply wagons fell many miles behind the infantry. But this is also where his men would earn their famous nickname, Jackson's Foot Cavalry. Turner Ashby was leading the way north with his cavalry when his riders ran into S.H.I.E.L.D. supply wagons four miles south of Winchester in a tiny hamlet called Kernstown. Early in the war, the South enjoyed a huge advantage over the North in their use of cavalry, and it would take another year before the North would even begin to make progress in this area. Now, Ashby would live only about two more months But during this time, he would become a legend. He was a brilliant writer, known for reckless, romantic bravery. He would come to represent for Southerners everything they thought noble and superior about the Southern cause. He was not known as a great leader of men, but his dash and reckless abandon were inspiring to the men around him. Now, Jackson was making his pursuit of shields with about 3,500 men, and Turner Ashby had reported that Shields had only a few regiments in Kernstown. This turns out to have been faulty intelligence from Ashby. Convinced that he greatly outnumbered Shields' force, this fit nicely with Jackson's plan to isolate portions of an enemy's army and to destroy them in detail. But Jackson did not know that Ashby's intel was wrong. He was actually outnumbered three to one, and was marching headlong into what amounted to a trap in Kernstown. On the morning of May 23, 1862, Ashby's rebel cavalry fought a heavy skirmish with a portion of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s main Union force and was repulsed. It was at this time that Ashby realized his mistaken intel, and he understood that they were facing a much larger Union force. But for some unknown reason, Ashby failed to pass this information to Jackson. Meanwhile, Union Commander Shields had been wounded by an artillery shell and was evacuated to Winchester to recover. At this, Union Colonel Nathan Kimball took his place. Now, Kimball was no political general like Shields. He was an experienced fighter, and as Jackson's force was coming up from the south, he found a great defensive position just north of Kernstown on a promontory called Pritchard's Hill. From this point, he could place his artillery and infantry and take on all comers. In fact, Kimball knew his force of 10,000 could easily destroy Jackson's much smaller force and was convinced Jackson couldn't possibly be crazy enough to attack him there. That said, nobody, certainly not Kimball, believed you could force march an army 30 miles and immediately attack an enemy upon arrival. But that's just what Jackson did. Now this was a Sunday, and nothing was more sacred to Jackson than the Sabbath. However, he told his wife later in a letter, but I felt it my duty to do it in consideration of the ruinous effects that might result from postponing the battle. Necessity and mercy. Both called for battle. Now, hundreds of men from Jackson's force were still strung out along the road south of Kernstown, having dropped out from fatigue and hunger. But Jackson had decided now was the time to attack. When he arrived on the scene, Jackson still thought he was facing a much smaller foe, but he was immediately taken aback by the intensity of the artillery fire coming from Kimball's men on that hill. At this point, Jackson actually saw something, though, that Kimball had missed. He saw a taller hill just to the west of Pritchard's Hill called Sandy Ridge. Still thinking his force outnumbered Kimball, Jackson planned to scale Sandy Ridge and flank Kimball's artillery on Pritchard's Hill. Then he would strike around to the valley turnpike in the uh, federal rear and capture Kimball's army. That was his plan. Now, to get the lay of the land, Jackson was coming up from the south with about 3,500 men. Kimball was facing him from the north with about 10,000 men in three columns. His own column was in the center on Pritchard's Hill. Sullivan's column was on the Union left, and Tyler's column would soon be on the Union right. Jackson was in the process of flanking Kimball on the right on the Union right, or west, by having his main force scale Sandy Ridge, but to get there he had to pass right in front of the murderous fire of Kimball's batteries on Pritchard's Hill. The rebels made steady progress and actually impressed the Union men who were firing on them by their courage under the intense artillery bombardment. As some of Jackson's batteries finally made it up Sandy Ridge, they began to fire on uh, Kimball's men. At which time Kimball realized his mistake. Jackson's men were actually able to fire down on Kimball's position from their from their position, which was about eight hundred yards higher in elevation. Sorry, one hundred yards higher in elevation. Now, all the while, Jackson's men had been braving the Union artillery and scaling Sandy Ridge on the Union right. Turner Ashby had pulled off an effective diversion on the Union left. Indeed, Ashby attacked with his cavalry force of about 450 so aggressively that Kimball believed the main Confederate attack would be on his left. This was the main reason Jackson was able to get most of his men on Sandy Ridge. Kimball had a huge numerical advantage, and he knew it, but he was taken aback by Jackson's audacity and speed at bringing his small force to bear. If Kimball had pressed forward on the left... While Jackson was moving his force to his right up Sandy Ridge, he probably could have easily flanked Jackson's army and perhaps even captured it entirely. But instead, he began a a brute force, straight-on battle with Jackson's men on Sandy Ridge that would last the rest of the day. (laughs) Now, Jackson also made mistakes, the biggest of of which was he held no council of war, and he didn't inform his commanders of his plans. He told them nothing, including his second-in-command, Richard Garnett. The officers did not know his plans to flank Kimball's army, and Garnett really didn't know what Jackson expected of him and the Stonewall Brigade. Also Jackson was was mistakenly feeding his units into the fight piecemeal instead of massing them to take advantage of their firepower. He would learn from this mistake and correct it with time. But when it came to sharing critical information with his subordinate commanders, this was something he would never do. Meanwhile, as the fight was taking shape, Jackson's young aide Sandy Pendleton climbed to the highest point of, of Sandy Ridge and made a stunning discovery. He now saw that they were facing—they were not facing a small Union force, as Ashby had reported. Instead, they were facing a full division, squarely in front of their position, with artillery to match. Pendleton immediately reported this new, new information to Jackson, who knew this would be shocking and demoralizing to his men if they found out, especially Garnett. So he told Pendleton say nothing of it. Then he said, we are in for it. So now Garnett and the other Confederate commanders knew nothing of Jackson's battle plan and nothing of the troop strength they faced. And of course, with this new information, Jackson's attack plan would need to change. This was no longer an attack, but instead a defensive fight for survival. The Battle of Kernstown, as it would be known, entered a second phase when Union Commander Kimball ordered Tyler's 5,300-man brigade to the far right to to attack Jackson's forces up on Sandy Ridge. In doing so, they ran headlong into the lead regiment of the Stonewall Brigade, the 23rd Virginia, which was at the time swinging west and north to defend the artillery of the ridge. Badly outnumbered, the Virginians fell back to a shoulder-high stone fence that ran east to west and ran and, uh, rose and fell with the landscape. This stone fence at the base of Sandy Ridge on the north face would now be the epicenter of the battle from 4 p.m. until dark. Now, Tyler's union men were from Pennsylvania and Ohio, and he led them out into the open field to attack the rebel position in tight columns. This was a mistake. It made them easy targets for the massed Virginians behind the stone fence. The Union assault failed twice for this reason, and while Federals were regrouping, Garnett was just arriving at the fence, at which point he realized he would need to concentrate his whole brigade at this position to keep keep it from being overrun, by Tyler's large Union force. Now, as I mentioned, the Confederates were firing old-style smoothbore muskets, and they were loaded with what amounted to buckshot. They called it buck and ball. These loads were not very accurate at long range, but at short range they were deadly against the attacking Union troops. Meanwhile, as Tyler's Union forces continued their attacks on the stone fence, Their sharpshooters were firing at the men behind the fence with their modern rifled muskets. They were deadly accurate, and most of the hits were shots to the head. This was beginning to take a toll on the rebels behind the fence. Importantly, Jackson's Confederates had just raced 30 miles to get to this fight, outrunning their supply trains, which held the ammunition. That all they had was the cartridge boxes they had on their person when they started their march. So as the fight raged on, the rebels started to run low on ammo. Garnett was in command of the men defending this now critical stone fence, and he had no idea what Jackson, where Jackson was and no idea of Jackson's battle plan. However, he was beginning to appreciate the desperate nature of the Confederate situation, and he was also aware his men were running low of ammo. It was about 4.30, and Jackson was a quarter mile to the rear of this position, feeding men forward to the stone fence, which now had about about 1,200 rebels defending it. The rebels had achieved a stalemate uh, against the much larger Union force as the fight went on furiously with constant musket fire from both sides. Jackson knew he had no chance of winning the battle. He only hoped to hold on until dark and then to withdraw under the cover of darkness. However, Garnett did not know Jackson's plan, and he began to worry about the state of ammunition and of the potential for being overrun at the stone fence by the gathering Union forces. The fighting was intense, and regimental flags began changing hands as standard-bearers were shot down. One such story was told of a regimental flag of the 2nd Virginia, Several standard bearers had been shot down when Lieutenant J. B. Smith picked or Davis, J. B. Davis picked up the flag and jumped up on the wall, brandishing it at the members of the sixty-seventh Ohio. They refused to shoot him out of respect. Don't shoot that man; he is too brave to die. On the Union side, Kimball finally realized he had no threat from the rebels on the left so he began to send thousands of fresh troops on the double quick swinging from the left around towards the east to confront the rebels on Sandy Ridge. This is when things began to unravel for Jackson's Confederates. Back at the stone fence, Garnett was storming up and down the line exhorting his men to keep up fighting as they repulsed attack after attack, but soon their ammunition position was critical And he began to fear envelopment by the Union forces coming over from the east. So, at about 6 p.m., Garnett called for a retreat from that position. But this got him into hot water with uh, Jackson. Jackson found Garnett and dressed him down furiously for ordering the withdrawal. Then he grabbed a young drummer boy in the area and said, Beat the rally, beat the rally. He also came up with his last reserves, the the 5th and the the 42nd Virginia regiments, but it was too late and they could do little more than cover the retreat. It began to get messy for Jackson as the Federal cavalry finally entered the fight and harassed his spent men during their hasty withdrawal. They captured several hundred Confederate prisoners who were paraded through the streets of Winchester. Now, most of Jackson's exhausted rebel force was able to retreat and march to the south until Jackson ordered his men into Bivouac, about five miles south of Kernstown. At one point, Jackson stopped by a campfire. General, said one of the men, it looks like you cut off more tobacco today than you could chew. Jackson simply replied, Oh, I think we did very well. He had a small dinner of meat and bread. This was his first of the day. He gave thanks to God and went to sleep on a bed of fence rails without a blanket next to his chief commissary, Wells Hawks. Now join me next time as we continue our study of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign.